0: Chapter thirteen of the Czar Spy This Liebervach recording is in the public domain Recording By Tom Weiss The tsar's Spy By William Le LeCue Chapter thirteen A Double Game and Its Consequences I went to the railway station and from the timetable gathered that if I left Abo by rail at noon, I could be in Petersburg an hour before noon on the morrow or about four hours before the arrival of the steamer by which the silent girl and her companion were passengers. This I decided upon doing, but before leaving I paid a visit to my friend Baranski, who to my surprise and delight handed me my wallet with the Tsar's letter intact, saying that it had been found upon a German thief who had been arrested at the harbor on the previous night. The fellow had, no doubt, stolen it from my pocket, believing I carried my paper money in the flat. "'The affair of the English lady is a most extraordinary one,' remarked the chief of police, toying with his pen as he sat at his big table. She seems to have met this Englishman up at Tamerfors or at some place further north. Yet it is curious that her passport should be in order, even though she fled so precipitately from Kajana.' There is a mystery connected with her disappearance from the woodcutter's hut that I confess I cannot fathom. Neither can I, I said. I know the man who is with her, and cannot help fearing that he is her bitterest enemy, that he is acting in concert with the Baron. Then why is he taking her to the capital, beyond the jurisdiction of a Governor-General? I am going straight to Petersburg to a certain, I said. I have only come to thank you for your kindness in this matter. Truth to tell, I have been somewhat surprised that you should have interested yourself on my behalf," I added, looking straight at the uniformed official. "'It was not on yours, but on hers,' he answered somewhat enigmatically. "'I know something of the affair, but it was my duty as a man to help the poor girl to escape from that terrible place.' She has, I know, been unjustly condemned for the attempted assassination of the wife of a general. Condemned with a purpose, of course. Such a thing is not unusual in Finland. Abominable, I cried. Oberg is a veritable fiend. But the man only shrugged his shoulders, saying, The orders of His Excellency the Governor-General have to be obeyed, whatever they are. We often regret, but we dare not refuse to carry them out. Russia is a disgrace to our modern civilization, I declared hotly. I have every sympathy with those who are fighting for freedom. Ah, you are not alone in that, he sighed, speaking in a low whisper and glancing around. His majesty would order reforms and ameliorate the condition of his people, if only it were possible. But he, like his officials, are powerless. Here we speak of the great uprising with bated breath, but we, alas, know that it must come one day, very soon, and Finland will be the first to endeavor to break her bonds, and the baron Oberg the first to fall. For nearly an hour I sat with him, surprised to find how, although his exterior was so harsh and uncouth, yet his heart really bled for the poor starving people he was so constantly forced to oppress. I have ruined this town of a bow, he declared quite frankly. To my own knowledge five hundred innocent persons have gone to prison, and another two hundred have been exiled to Siberia. Yet what I have done is only at direct orders from Helsingfors, orders that are stern, pitiless, and unjust. Men have been torn from their families and sent to the mines, women have been arrested for no offense, and shipped off to Sakhalyan, and mere children have been cast into prison on charges of political conspiracy with their elders in order to russify the province. Only, he added anxiously, I trust you will never repeat what I tell you. You have asked me why I assisted the English mademoiselle to escape from Kajana, and I have explained the reason. We ate a hearty meal in the company at the Sampolina, a restaurant built like a Swiss chalet, and at noon I entered the train on the first stage of my slow, tedious journey through the great silent forests and along the shores of the lakes of southern Finland by way of Travestius and Viborg to Petersburg. I was alone in the compartment and sat moodily watching the panorama of wood and river as we slowly wound up the tortuous ascents and descended the steep gradients. I had not even a newspaper with which to while away the time, only my own apprehensive thoughts of whither my helpless love was being conducted. Surely to no man was there ever presented such a complicated problem as that which I was now trying so vigorously to solve. I loved Elma Heath. The more I reflected, the deeper did her sweet countenance and tender grace impress themselves upon my heart. I loved her, therefore I was striving to overtake her. The steamer, I learned, would call at Hango and Helsingfors. Would they, I wonder, disembark at either of those places? Was the man whom I had known as Hornby, the owner of the Lola, taking her to place her again in the fiendish hands of Xavier Oberg? The very thought of it caused me to hold my breath. Daylight came at last, cold and gray, over those dreary interminable marshes where game, especially snipe seemed abundant, and at a small station at the head of a lake, called Davidstadt, I took my morning glass of tea. Then we resumed our journey down to Viborg, where a short, thick-set Russian of the commercial class, but something of a dandy entered my compartment, and we left express for Petersburg. We had passed by a small station called Galatsina, near which were many villas occupied in summer by families from Petersburg and were travelling through the dense gloomy pine woods when my fellow traveller having asked permission to smoke commenced to chat affably he seemed a pleasant fellow and told me that he was a wool merchant and that he had been having a pleasant vacation trout fishing in the voski above the falls of imatra where the pools between the rapids abound with fish he had told me that on account of the shore being so full of weeds and the clearness of the water fishing from the banks was almost an impossibility and how they had to accustom themselves to troll from a boat so small as to only accommodate the rower and the fisherman. Then he remarked suddenly, "'You are English, I presume, possibly from Helsingfors?' "'No,' I answered, "'from a bow. I crossed from Stockholm and am going to Petersburg.' "'And I also, I live in Petersburg,' he added. "'We may perhaps meet one day. Do you know the capital?' I explained that I had visited it once before, and had done the usual round of sight-seeing. His manner was brisk and to the point, as became a man of business, but when we stopped at Bili Ostrov, on the opposite side of the small winding river that separates Finland from Russia proper, the customs officer who came to examine our baggage exchanged a curious meaning look with him. My fellow traveller believed that I had not observed, yet, Keenly on the alert as I now was, I was shrewd to detect the least sign or look, and I at once resolved to tell the fellow nothing further of my own affairs. He was, no doubt, a spy of the Stranglers, who had followed me all the way from Abo and had only entered my carriage for the final stage of the journey. This revelation caused me some uneasiness, for even though I was able to evade the man on arrival in Petersburg, he could no doubt quickly obtain news of my whereabouts from the police to whom my passport must be sent. I pretended to doze and lay back with my eyes half closed watching him. When he found me disinclined to talk further, he took up the paper he had bought and became engrossed in it, while I, on my part, endeavored to form some plan by which to mislead and escape his vigilance. The fellow meant mischief that i knew if elma was flying in secret and he watched me he would know that she was in petersburg at all hazards for my love's sake as well as for mine i saw that i must escape him the ingeniousness and cleverness of oberg's spies was proverbial throughout finland therefore he might not be alone or in any case on arrival in petersburg would obtain assistance in keeping observation upon me I knew that the baron desired my death, and that therefore I could not be too wary of pitfalls. That fatal chair so cunningly prepared for me in Lambeth was still vividly within my memory. As we passed Lanskaya and ran through the outer suburbs of Petersburg, my fellow-traveler became inquisitive as to where I was going, but I was somewhat unresponsive and busied myself with my bag until we entered the great echoing terminus whence I could see the neva gleaming in the pale sunlight and the city beyond. The fellow made no attempt to follow me. He was too clever a secret agent for that. He merely wished me tras der, raised his hat politely, and disappeared. A porter carried my bag out of the station, and I drove across the bridge to the large hotel where I had stopped before, the Europe on the corner of the Nevsky Prospect and the Michael Street. There I engaged a front room looking down into the broad Nevsky, had a wash, and then watched at the window for the appearance of the spy. I had already a good four hours before the steamer from a was due, and I intended to satisfy myself whether or not I was being followed. Within twenty minutes the fellow lounged alongside the opposite side of the road, just as I had expected. He had changed his clothes and presented such a different appearance that at first sight I failed to recognize him. He knew that I had driven there, and intended to follow me if I came forth. My position was one of extreme difficulty, for if I went down to the quay he would most certainly follow me. Having watched his movements for ten minutes or so, I descended to the big mouchère and there ate my luncheon chatting to the French waiter the while. I sat purposely in an alcove, so as to be away from the other people lunching there, and in order that I might be able to talk with the waiter without being overheard. Just as I had finished my meal and he was handing me my bill, I bent towards him and asked, "'Do you want to earn twenty roubles?' "'Well, monsieur,' he answered, looking at me with some surprise, "'they would be acceptable. I am a married man.' well, I want to escape from this place without being observed. There is a disagreeable little matter regarding a lady, and I fear a fracas with a man who is awaiting me outside in the Nevsky. Then, seeing that he hesitated, I assured him that I had committed no crime, and that I should return for my baggage that evening. "'You could pass through the kitchen and out by the servant's entrance,' he said, after a moment's reflection. "'If monsieur so desires,' I will conduct him out. The exit is in the back street which leads on to the Catherine Canal. Excellent, I said. Let us go. Of course you will say nothing? Not a word, monsieur, and he gathered up the notes, plus twenty roubles with which I paid my bill, and taking my hat I followed him to the end of Le salle mouchère, behind a high wooden screen, across the huge kitchen, and then through a long stone corridor at the end, of which sat a gruff old doorkeeper. My guide spoke a word to him, and then the door opened, and I found myself in a narrow back slum with a canal beyond. My first visit was to a clothier's, where I purchased and put on a new light overcoat, and then to a hatter's for a hat of different shape to that I was wearing. I carried the hat back to a quiet alley which I had noticed, and quickly exchanged the one I was wearing for it, leaving my old hat in a corner. Then I entered a cafe in order to while away the hours until the vessel from Finland was due. At four o'clock I was out upon the quay, straining my eyes seaward for any sign of smoke, but could see nothing. The sun was sinking and the broad expanse of water westward danced like liquid gold. The light died out slowly, the cold gray of evening crept on. A chill wind sprang up and swept the quay, causing me to shiver. I asked of a dock laborer whether the steamer was usually late, whereupon he told me that it was often five or six hours behind time, depending upon the delay at Helsingfors. Twilight deepened into night, and the rain fell heavily, yet I still paced the wet flags in patience, my eyes ever seaward for the light of the vessel which I hoped bore my love my presence there aroused some speculation among the loungers i think nevertheless i waited in deepest anxiety whether after all elma and hornby had not disembarked at helsingfors soon after ten o'clock a light shone afar off and the movement of the police and porters on the quay told me that it was the vessel then after a further anxious quarter of an hour it came amid great shouting and mutual imprecations slowly alongside the quay, and the passengers at last began to disembark in the pelting rain. One after another they walked up the gangway, filing into the passport office and on into the custom house, people of all sorts and all grades, Swedes, Germans, Finns, and Russians, until suddenly I caught sight of two figures, one a man in a big tweed traveling coat and a golf cap, and the other the slight figure of a woman in a long dark cloak and a woolen tam o The electric rays fell upon them as they came up the wet gangway together, and there once again I saw the sweet face of the silent woman whom I had grown to love with such fervent desperation. The man behind her was the same one who had entertained me on board the Lola, the man who was said to be the lover of the fugitive, Muriel Leithcourt. Without betraying my presence I watched them pass through the passport office and custom-house, and then, overhearing the address which Martin Woodruff gave the Istvasashik, I stood aside, wet to the skin, and saw them drive away. At eleven o'clock on the following day I found myself installed in the Hotel de Paris, a comfortable hostelry in the Little Morskaya having succeeded in evading the vigilance of the spy who had so cleverly followed me from a bow, and in getting my suitcase round from the Hotel Europe. I was beneath the same roof as Elma, although she was in ignorance of my presence. Anxious to communicate with her without Woodruff's knowledge, I was now awaiting my opportunity. He had, it appeared, taken for her a pleasant front room with sitting-room adjoining on the first floor, while he himself occupied a room on the third floor. The apartments he had engaged for her were the most expensive in the hotel, and as far as I could gather from the French waiter whom I judiciously tipped, he appeared to treat her with every consideration and kindness. "'Ah, poor lady!' the man exclaimed as he stood in my room, answering my questions. "'What an affliction!' She writes down all her orders, for she can utter no word. "'Has the Englishman received any visitors?' I asked. "'One man, a Russian, an official of police, I think.' "'If he receives any one else, let me know,' I said, "'and I want you to give Mademoiselle a letter from me, in secret. Bien, monsieur.' I turned to the little writing-table and scribbled a few hasty lines to my love, announcing my presence and asking her to grant me an interview in secret as soon as Woodruff was absent. I also warned her of the search for her instigated by the Baron, and urged her to send me a line in reply. The note was delivered into her hand, but although I waited in suspense nearly all day, she sent no reply. While Woodruff was in the hotel I dared not show myself lest he should recognize me, Therefore I was compelled to sham indisposition and to eat my meals alone in my room. Both the means by which she had met Martin Woodruff and the motive were equally an enigma. By that letter she had written to her schoolfellow, it was apparent that she had some secret of his, for had she not wished to send him a message of reassurance that she had divulged nothing? This would seem that they were close friends. Yet, on the other hand, something seemed to me that he was acting falsely and was really an ally of the baron's why had he brought her to petersburg if he had desired to rescue her he would have taken her in the opposite direction to stockholm where she would be free whereas he took her an escaped prisoner into the very midst of peril it was true that her passport was in order yet i remembered that an order had been issued for her transportation to Sakhelion, and now, once arrested, she must be lost to me forever. This thought filled me with fierce anxiety. She was in Petersburg, that city where police spies swarm, and where every fresh arrival is noted and his antecedents inquired into. No attempt had been made to disguise who she was, therefore before long the police would undoubtedly come and arrest her as the escaped criminal from Kajana. For several hours I sat at my window, watching the life and movement down in the street below, my mind full of wonder and dark forebodings. Was Martin Woodruff playing her false? Just after half-past six o'clock the waiter entered and handing me a note on a salver said, Mademoiselle has, I believe, only this moment been able to write in secret. I tore it open and read as follows. Dear friend, I am so surprised. I thought you were still in a bow. Woodroffe has an appointment at eight o'clock on the other side of the city. Therefore come to me at eight fifteen. I must see you, and at once. I am in peril. Elma Heath My love was in peril. It was just as I had feared. I thanked Providence that I had been sent to help her and extricate her from that awful fate to which the Strangler of Finland had consigned her. At the hour she named, after the waiter had come to me and announced the Englishman's departure, I descended to her sitting-room and entered without rapping, for if I had rapped she could not, alas, have heard. The apartment was spacious and comfortable, thickly carpeted, with heavy furniture and gilding. Before the long window were drawn curtains of dark green plush, and on one side was the high stove of white porcelain with shining brass bands, while from her low lounge-chair A slim wan figure sprang up quickly and came forward to greet me, holding out both her hands and smiling happily. I took her hands in mine and held them tightly in silence for some moments as I looked earnestly into those wonderfully brilliant eyes of hers. She turned away, laughing, a slight flush rising to her cheeks in her confusion. Then she led me to a chair and motioned me to be seated. Ours was a silent meeting but her gestures and the expression of her eyes were surely more eloquent than mere words. I knew well what pleasure that re-encounter caused her, equal pleasure with that it gave to me. Until that moment I had never really loved. I had admired and flirted with women, what man has not. Indeed I had admired Muriel Leithcourt, but never until now had I experienced in my heart the real flame of true burning affection. The sweetness of her expression, the tender caress of those soft tapering hands, the deep mysterious look in those magnificent eyes, and the incomparable grace of all her movements combined to render her the most perfect woman I had ever met. Perfect in all, alas, save speech and hearing, of which with such dastard wantonness she had been deprived." She touched her red lips with the tip of her forefinger, opened her hands, and shrugged her shoulders with a sad gesture of regret. Then, turning quickly to some paper on the little table at her side, she wrote something with a gold pencil and handed it to me. It read, "'Surely Providence has sent you here. Mr. Woodruff must have followed you from England. He is my enemy. You must take me from here and hide me. They intend to send me into exile.' "'Have you ever been in Petersburg before? Do you know anyone here?' Then, when I had read, she handed me her pencil, and below I wrote, "'I will do my best, dear friend. I have been once in Petersburg, but is it not possible that we should escape at once from Russia?' "'Impossible,' she wrote. We should both be arrested at the frontier. It would be best to go into hiding here in Petersburg.' I believed Woodruff to be my friend, but I have found only this day that he is my enemy. He knew that I was in Kajana and was in a bow when he learned of my escape. He went with two other men in search of us, and discovered us that night when we sought shelter at the woodcutter's hut. Without making his presence known he waited outside until you were asleep, and then he came and looked in at my window. At first I was alarmed, but quickly I saw that he was a friend. He told me that the police were in the vicinity and intended to raid the hut, therefore I fled with him, first down to the Tamaphors, and then to bow, and on here. At that time I did not see the dastardly trap he had laid in order to get me out of the baron's clutches and wring from me my secret. If I confess he intends to give me up to the police who will send me to the mines." Does your secret concern him? I asked in writing. Yes, she wrote in response. It would be equally in his interests as well as those of Baron Oberg if I were sent to Sughelion, and my identity effaced. I am a Russian subject, as I have already told you. Therefore, with a ministerial order against me, I am in deadliest peril. Trust in me, I scribbled quickly. I will act upon any suggestion you make. Have you any female friend in whom you could trust to hide you until this danger is past? There is one friend, a true friend. Will you take a note to her? She wrote, to which I instantly nodded in the affirmative. Then, rising, she obtained some ink and pen and wrote a letter, the contents of which she did not show me before she sealed it. I sat, watching her beautiful head bent beneath the shaded lamplight, catching her profile and noticing how eminently handsome it was, superb and unblemished in her youthful womanhood. I watched her write the superscription upon the envelope Madame Olga Strasulevich Modista Skredna Prospect two three one Vasily Ostro I knew that the district was on the opposite side of the city, close to the little neva. Take Adrosky at once, see her and await a reply. In the meantime, I will prepare to be ready when you return," she wrote. If Olga is not at home, ask to see the Red Priest, in Russian, Krasnipostur, return quickly, as I fear Woodruff may come back. If so, I am lost. I assured her I would not lose a single instant, and five minutes later I was tearing down the Moiskaya in Androvsky, along the canal and across the Nicholas Bridge to the address upon the envelope. The house was, I found, somewhat smaller than its neighbors, but not let out in flats as the other. Upon the door was a large brass plate bearing the name Orga Strasurlevich Modes. I pressed the electric button, and in answer a tall, clean-shaven Russian servant opened the door. "'Madame is not at home,' was his brief reply to my inquiry. "'Then I will see the red priest,' I said in a lower tone. "'I come from Elma Heath.' Thereupon, without further word, the man admitted me into the long, dark hall and closed the door with an apology that the gas was not lighted, but striking a match he led me up the broad staircase and into a small, cozy, well-furnished room on the second floor. Evidently the sitting-room of some studious person "'judging from the books and critical reviews lying about. "'For a few minutes I waited there until the door reopened, "'and there entered a man of medium height "'with a shock of long snow-white hair "'and almost patriarchal beard, "'whose dark eyes that age had dimmed "'flashed out at me with a look of curious inquiry, "'and whose movements were those of a person "'not quite at his ease. "'I have called on behalf of Mademoiselle Elma Heath, to give this letter to Madame Strasolevich, or if she is absent, to place it in the hands of the Red Priest, I explained in my best Russian. "'Very well, sir,' the old man responded in quite good English. "'I am the person you seek.' And taking the letter he opened it and read it through. I saw by the expression on his furrowed face that its contents caused him the utmost consternation. His countenance already pale, blanched to the lips, while in his eyes there shot a fire of quick apprehension. The thin, almost transparent hand holding the letter trembled visibly. "'You know mademoiselle, eh?' he asked in a hoarse, strained voice as he turned to me. "'You will help her to escape?' "'I will risk my own life in order to save hers,' I declared. "'And your devotion to her is prompted by what?' he inquired suspiciously. I was silent for a moment. Then I confessed the truth. My affection. Ah, he sighed deeply. Poor young lady. She who has enemies on every hand sadly needs a friend. But can we trust you? Have you no fear? Of what? Of being implicated in the coming revolution in Russia. Remember, I am the Red Priest. Have you never heard of me? My name is Otto Kampf. Otto Kampf. I stood before him open-mouthed. Who in Russia had not heard of that mysterious unknown person who had directed a hundred conspiracies against the imperial autocrat, and yet the identity of whom the police had always failed to discover? It was believed that Kampf had once been professor of chemistry at Moscow University, and that he had invented that most terrible and destructive explosive used by the revolutionist. The ingredients of the powerful compound and the mode of firing it was the secret of the nihilist alone, and Otto Kampf, the mysterious leader, whose personality was unknown even to the conspirators themselves, directed those constant attempts which held the emperor and his government in such hourly terror. Rewards without number had been offered by the Ministry of the Interior for the betrayal and arrest of the unseen man whose power in Russia, permeating every class was greater than that of the emperor himself, at whose word one day the people would rise in a body and destroy their oppressors. The emperor, the ministers, the police, and the bureaucrats knew this, yet they were powerless. They knew that the mysterious professor who had disappeared from Moscow fifteen years before and had never since been seen was only waiting his opportunity to strike a blow that would stagger and crush the empire from end to end yet of his whereabouts they were in utter ignorance you are surprised the old man laughed noticing my amazement well you are not one of us yet i need not impress upon you the absolute necessity for mademoiselle's sake to preserve the secret of my existence it is because you are not a member of the will of the people that you have never heard of the red priest Red, because I wrote my ultimatum to the Tsar in the blood of one of his victims knouted in the fortress of Peter and Paul, and priest because I preached the gospel of freedom and justice. I shall say nothing, I said, gazing at the strangely striking figure before me, the unknown man who directed the great upheaval that was to revolutionize Russia. My only desire is to save Mademoiselle Heath, and you are prepared to do so at risk of your own liberty, your own life. Ah, you said you love her. Would not this be a test of your affection?' "'I am prepared for any test, as long as she escapes the trap which her enemies have set for her. I succeeded in saving her from Kajana, and I intend to save her now.' "'Was it you who actually entered Kajana and snatched her from that tomb?' he exclaimed. And he took my hand enthusiastically, adding, I have no further need to doubt you. And turning to the table he wrote an address upon a slip of paper saying, "'Take Mademoiselle there. She will find a safe place of concealment. But go quickly, for every moment places you both in more deadly peril. Hide yourself there also.' I thanked him and left at once. But as I stepped out of the house and re-entered the Drusky, I saw close by, lurking in the shadow, the spy of the strangler of Finland who had traveled with me from abo. Our eyes met, and he recognized me, notwithstanding my light overcoat and new hat. Then, with heart sinking, the ghastly truth flashed upon me. All had been in vain. Elma was lost to me. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tom Weiss